Shabbat Shalom. If you will turn into, as Heim says, the good book, to Philippians chapter 1, I will be reading chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 11. Only conduct your lives in a way worthy of the good news of the Messiah, so that whether I come and see you, or whether I hear about you from a distance, you stand firm, united in spirit, fighting with one accord for the faith of the good news, not frightened by anything the opposition does. This will be for them an indication that they are headed for destruction and you for deliverance. And this is from God, because for the Messiah's sake, it has been granted to you not only to trust in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, to fight the same battles you once saw me fight, and now hear that I am still fighting. Therefore, if you have any encouragement for me, from you being in union with the Messiah, any comfort flowing from love, any fellowship with me in the Spirit, or any compassion and sympathy, then complete my joy by having a common purpose and a common love, by being one in heart and mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or vanity, but in humility, Regard each other as better than yourselves. Look out for each other's interests and not just your own. Let your attitude toward one another be governed by you being in union with Messiah Yeshua. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be possessed, to be possessed by force. On the contrary, he emptied himself in that he took the form of a slave by becoming like human beings are. And then, when he appeared as a human being, he humbled himself still more by becoming obedient even to death, death on a stake as a criminal. Therefore, God raised him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that in honor of the name given Yeshua, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Yeshua the Messiah is Adonai to the glory of God the Father. I just wanted to pause for a minute and, and uh, pray for the portion of scripture that uh, Paula read to us from the complete Jewish Bible so that the Lord can tune us to what he has in mind. So let's pause and, uh, and pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you, Lord God, that you know precisely what each one of us needs to hear this morning. And we pray, Lord God, that in this look into your word, Lord, in this uh, reflection of your word, we pray that each one of us 
would be able to, to hear so that we can take your word and apply it and live by it. And we ask this, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Well, we are on the other side of the Moadim, the special fall holidays. And by the way, if you're new to us, let me just explain that Moadim comes from a Hebrew word that has to do with appointed times. Um, so the Moadim, the special holidays, which are defined in Leviticus 23, explain to us um, the fact that God wants us to come together and, and, and be with him. There are sort of uh, special dates, if you would. And um, our focus has been on the Lord and his plans for Israel. And um, so now the Moadim are, are finished. Do we go back to normal, whatever normal looks like? Um, and I want to encourage all of us to maintain that same attitude in, in our life, in our thoughts that says, you know, we have spent all this time seeking to come into the Lord's presence for a special occasion. And we want that to be reality for us, not just during those weeks, but on an ongoing basis. And there is a scripture that I just wanted to fast forward and, and read to you that really grabs me. The prophet Hosea states, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And the Hebrew phrase for pressing on has the sense of chasing after God. It's a very strong, very strong word that encourages us to have God... Um, in, in the forefront of, of our vision and for us to pursue him, um, to have him and his presence and his reality be, be the number one concern in our life. So as I mentioned, um, the past couple of months, we've spent a lot of time talking about Israel because we are a Messianic Jewish congregation and we wanted to spend time looking at what it means to be part of Israel, what God is doing with Israel. And a major issue for us was our need to be able to step back from our preoccupation with life, with ourselves, with our own needs, to be able to step back and say, okay, um, I have my needs, I have my concerns that I quetch to God on an ongoing basis. But I want to be able to step back and see what he's doing um, on the larger stage, particularly with the nation of Israel, and then, of course, from the nation of Israel on beyond that. Um, and we have talked about the fact that the restoration of Israel seems like an impossible dream sometimes. The vast majority of the nation of Israel in Israel, for example, is secular, uh, about 80% or so of the, of the people in Israel are secular. and In the United States, the statistics are pretty high as well. But we come back to 
the reality, not so much of the facts on the ground, but who God is. And particularly a statement that Jeremiah made where he, sta- where he states, O Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And when we look at the larger picture of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the nation, what's going on in Israel, we can get discouraged, we can get cynical, or else we can say, God is able to intervene and work His good plans for humanity, period, whether we see it and understand it or not. And particularly with Israel at this point, where it seems that the nation of Israel is hearing drumbeats of war all around uh, because of Hezbollah, because of Hamas, because of Iran, and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's mind-boggling, that part of it. Uh, and you can get discouraged and cynical. For example, to give you one um, version of the perverse reality that those of us who care for Israel have to, to deal with, um, a week ago or so, you, you may have heard that Israel intercepted a drone that Hezbollah sent um, in order to gather information. It, w- it was a reconnoitering kind of a drone. Um, and the Israeli Air Force scrambled jets, and they followed it. And where, uh, when it came to a particular time and space, where they could safely bring it down, they did just that. They shot it down. Uh, The take on it from Iran was that this was a great victory, that Hezbollah was able to send a drone and that Israel was not able to do anything until it was deep in Israeli territory. It kind of gives you the warped perspective of the, the, the people that we're dealing with who really have a, a totally different mindset of reality. And so it can get discouraging until we step back and recognize the fact that the Lord has a plan. And furthermore, who Allah like say? He's on the throne. So this is the Jewish portion of what it means to be a Messianic Jewish congregation And I felt led the past couple of weeks, uh, last Shabbat and today, to talk about what it means to be messianic, messianic. Um, Because that's obviously a a concern for us. And again, as is the case with Israel, so is the case with the messianic portion. We are consumed by life. And it's sometimes difficult for us to focus on Messiah and see just who he is because life gets in the way. Um, You may have read this week that uh, one of the um, bars on Colorado Boulevard uh, was shot up and then torched by three, three men and five people were killed. By the way, that is about uh, less than a mile from where we live brings home the fact that life can be highly tenuous and that it's important for us to 
cling to the Lord. And there's a, a term in, in traditional Judaism called the vekut, which literally means sticking to God like glue, cleaving to God like glue. And that is our desire uh, to do just that as we go through life, as we deal with all the circumstances that come our way, recognizing the fact that we certainly don't have the answers, but that God does. And this portion that Paula read to us was given to a people who are struggling. And, and I, for one, am, am pleased that the Word of God gives us pictures of life that is real. The Philippians, by the way, were dealing with an awful lot of persecution um, from people around them. And so part of what Paul is doing in this epistle, what Rav Shaul is doing in this epistle, is encouraging them to persevere and to press. And so in verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, If you have any encouragement from being united with, with Messiah, if you have any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion... Do you get the fact that this is kind of a rhetorical question? He is not saying, well, let's see, is there really any comfort in Messiah? The short version is, of course there is. Because the if there really means since. Since there is comfort and encouragement. By the way, some translations may have it as exhortation. And that really it doesn't fit here. Are, do we have encouragement from being united with Messiah. Now what on earth does this phrase in Messiah or united with Messiah, what does that mean? It appears 90 times in the New Testament. So it has to be real important to, to get that kind of coverage. Well, um, some people see it somewhat mystically. You know, we stand before God and, and as far as God is concerned, He sees us part and parcel together with Yeshua. Because when we signed on the dotted line, we became children of God. We became, in a sense, brothers of Yeshua. And so we are associated with Yeshua in Him, in, in a union with Him, uh, positionally. But it also means that as we go through life, then we gradually get the fact that our life is more and more about Him and less and less about us. And that's such a difficult concept to get our arms around because human, humans that we are, we are so self-consumed. It is so easy to think about ourselves and our issues and our situations and our struggles. And Paul and the rest of the writers of the New Testament bring us back again and again to the fact that we are united, that we have this association with Messiah. Not something that is unique to the New Testament, to the New Covenant. Of course, we find it throughout Scripture in the Tanakh and the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Salvation, of course, in Hebrew is Yeshua. Um, so do we have 
comfort and, and confidence and encouragement in Yeshua, you bet. And one of the major reasons why we do is because Yeshua walked where we walked and he understands who we are firsthand and he suffered the way we suffered. I wanted to read to you a couple of verses and, and I'm going to rattle through a number of scriptures. You can jot them down if you like, but I just wanted you to listen. This is, of course, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, which in Hebrew, by the way, means pain, a man of pain and familiar with suffering, familiar with sickness. Surely he took up our infirmities, again, sickness there, and carried our sorrows. It's not just sorrows. Again, it's pain. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yeshua suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so he understands who we are. He understands where we struggle. And that is why we have encouragement because we're not dealing with someone who is clueless for whom this is all theoretical. Amen. Writer of Hebrews puts it in, in a nutshell in 2.18 because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In, in four, uh, chapter 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is because Yeshua suffered, he understands us, and because of that, we can come in confidence that he can relate to us and understand what we're going through. And because of that, we have encouragement in Him. We're not on our own. He is at work redemptively in our life. Paul also speaks about being united in the Spirit. And this is a tough one. Why is it difficult for people who say, I'm a follower of Yeshua, why is it difficult for people to be united? Well, among other things, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds. We have all kinds of persuasions. Spiritually, some of us uh, politically, some of us as far as reality of how we view life. And so... It is natural for us to not to come together. It is natural for us to pull apart. That's human nature, folks. Uh, the truth is you put several people together. When you have two people, you have politics. I mean, that, that, that kind of sums it up in a nutshell, doesn't it? Um, being a, uh, a former or uh, a practicing Trekkie, I remember a, uh, a, a very uh, vivid scene 
where there were a couple of gentlemen who were fighting each other, and it looks like they were fighting each other to the death. Um, and the crew of the, the Enterprise had no clue why they had this unbelievable animosity. And uh, at the end of this particular uh, setting, they said to them, why, do you, why are you fighting? Why are you trying to kill each other? And the response was, can't you see? He is black on this side and white on this side, and I'm white on this side and black on that side. And this is so much part of reality for us. We will fuss at a drop of the hat. I mean, as we get older, hopefully we, we have a, a better sense of, of perspective and, and we learn more about what it means to follow Yeshua but the New Testament defines spiritual maturity as knowing and understanding how to be united in the Messiah. That's spiritual maturity. Because the closer we get to the Lord, the more of Him we see on our screen, the more the differences will fall away. And contrary to that, if we are consumed with all kinds of fussing and all kinds of divisiveness with each other, you bet that the Lord is not on our screen, that all kinds of other things fill our screen. This is Yeshua's, on Yeshua's heart. He prayed that back 2,000 years ago. He prayed it today. He is praying that today. John 17, Holy Father, protect him. By the power of your name, the name that you gave me. Why? So that they may be one as we are one. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. I have given them the glory you have given me, that they may be one as you are one. Did you catch that? Three times in this passage in John 17, in, in, in the prayer that Yeshua offers to the Father, three times, he mentions the fact that he's concerned about his followers being united. And you know, whenever you have a, a threefold repetition in Scripture, that is always indicative of the fact that God says, Okay, are you getting it? Sit up and pay attention. And then later on in this uh, passage in John 17, Yeshua said, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. And the language in Greek suggests a process that isn't completely linear, you know, that has ups and downs and sometimes goes backwards. But if the Lord is at work, if the Spirit of God is at work in us, and if we're going to maturity in Yeshua, what is going to happen? We will become one in Him, because He is one. And you find that throughout the, the New Testament as well, the emphasis on unity, especially as we face a world that is unfriendly to Yeshua and unfriendly to the good news and frankly, sometimes unfriendly to us. Which is why here when we come back to the portion that Paula read to us why you have this emphasis again and again and again and again and again about the need to be one.
And let me just reread a couple of the, the verses to emphasize them. Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the good news. This is 127. Then 2.2, two, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. What does that suggest? Does that suggest that we become homogenized, that, that God somehow puts us in a blender and we become Gerberized, you know, like Gerber food? We're afraid of that. We're afraid that if God brings us into unity, that we're going to lose our individual identity and our distinctiveness. And that is such a lie because Scripture presents unity as diversity. Unity is unity in diversity. It's not homogeneity where everybody looks the same, everybody dresses the same, everybody talks the same. Wouldn't that be immensely boring? But part of what Paul is saying is have the same perspective, have the same vision, have a shared vision of where you need to be heading because unity isn't just thoughts and attitude. Unity also is translated into action. Amen. Scripture speaks about, in a different setting, about not being unequally yoked. And what that means, if you know anything about plowing of those days, you take two oxen that match each other so that they pull together. What would happen if you take a big, gigantic oxen and then you would try to match it up with a donkey or with a mule? Wouldn't work very well. The ox would pull this way and the mule would pull that way. So part of what Paul is saying here is have a shared vision and pull together in the same direction, not in a zillion, a zillion different directions. That is why I felt led the past couple of months to emphasize portions of our vision, what we are about, where, what God has called us to be then, of course, what God has called us to do. And part of the picture here is that unity is a flip side of the coin for humility. Because if you think of yourself more highly than somebody else, you're going to be disunited instead of being in unity. Paul puts it this way, for by the grace given me, I say to everyone, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. What does that mean? That means that sometimes we, we kind of go from one ditch to the other. Do you ever notice that? We go from one ditch where we think of ourselves as, as God's gift to humanity. You ever see people like that? Um, that's one ditch. The other ditch are the folks that are self-deprecating to the nth degree, you know, uh, sort of like, who am I? Uh, why would God want anything with me? Why would anybody else want anything with me? 
that's one ditch to the other. And what, what Paul is saying is, don't go from one ditch thinking of yourself more highly on one hand. On the other hand, think of yourself with sober judgment. Where God has given you a call, and it's a special call, you walk in it. And, and that's part of the confidence you have in God. And because He's called you, He will sort things out. He will sort things out. Where there are obstacles, He will sort those obstacles out. Because it's His business, first and foremost. But he requires that we have a humble posture. Humble doesn't mean self-deprecating. And part of the picture here, um, some part of the picture here is that uh, in verse three, Paul says, "Do nothing out of selfish ambition." Or vain conceit, but in humility consider other, others better than yourselves. What does that mean? What does it mean to consider others better than yourself? It simply means, folks, that if you are secure and confident in who you are in the Lord, the Lord will see to it that what belongs to you will be given to you. And with that kind of a perspective, you learn to depend on God and to do what He calls you to do and to do it with humility and working together in unity with your brothers and sisters. Following Yeshua's example. And that's what Paul is saying here. Because you are Messianic, you follow the Messiah. And what did Messiah do? What was his perspective? Then he goes on to give us what looks like an early psalm. And uh, probably originally in Hebrew or in Aramaic. And some people think that it was sung antiphonally. In other words, it was uh, back and forth responsiveness, responsive reading or responsive chanting possibly for Passover or Yeshua's Supper. We don't know all the details about that, but it's clearly poetic. It's clearly poetic. And one of the ways you know that is when you look at the book of Psalms, you see the poetry and you see the what is called parallelisms, which means that you make a statement and then you come back and repeat the same statement but in different words to emphasize it. And that's what you have here in this incredible song, verses 6 to, to 11, that is mind-boggling. And reality is we will understand it fully when we see the Lord. But there are some things we can't understand. And so I just wanted to rattle through it rather quickly. Recognizing the fact that none of us really understands fully ex exactly what that means. Being, verse 6, being in the very nature God. Being in the form of God. Again, what does that mean? 
I read a, a quote that really helped me understand that. Yeshua being in the very nature of God had the nature of God meaning the sum of the qualities that make God specifically God. Now think about that. You and I have intelligence, although I wonder sometimes, um, emotions and will. Where do we get the intelli intelligence, emotion, and will? We got it from God. Um, do we have other divine attributes? I really don't believe so. We're not omnipresent. In other words, we cannot be everywhere at the same time. We are not omniscient. We don't know all things. Hallelujah. I don't always know what's in your brain. You don't always know what's in my brain. Yeshua did. John chapter 2. Yeshua knew exactly what, what was in people's mind. And he didn't trust him fully. God is omnipotent. He can do all things. And Yeshua demonstrated that uh, when he spoke a word and the winds died down, the storm went away. I don't believe any one of us here can speak to the wind and see the wind just die down. At least I haven't seen that lately. So Yeshua had the attributes of God and he was willing to lay aside his status and privilege as the son of God. Now again, this is one of those things that I, I really can't get my arms around. What was it like for Yeshua before his incarnation, before he came down to earth to be in glory with the Father? Uh, but, basic, but what we do know is that he was willing to lay that aside. And that on one occasion in uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when Yeshua and the disciples, two disciples were there, his face shone and, and he, was, he looked spectacular with the kind of glory that he probably had before. But most of the time while Yeshua was on earth, he looked like an ordinary human being. Do you realize that? Why would Judas have to come to Yeshua and, and kiss him in order for the temple guards to, to know who to grab? And it wasn't just because the light was dim and so on and so forth. No. Yeshua did not have spectacular appearance that where people looked at him and said, Ah, there is Yeshua of Nazareth. Not because of, of his face. Um... He didn't stand out because he was Norwegian looking among a bunch of Semites. <laughs> Although he's painted that way. <laughs> Yeshua was willing to lay that aside. He made himself nothing. This is NIV. Other translations give it more literally. He emptied himself. That's where you get the uh, Greek word kenosis. Um, that defines this, this teaching. He emptied himself. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? And by the way, 
we spend a couple of Shabbatot talking about this because people shipwreck on the issue of who is Yeshua. It is, in a sense, the most important question we can ask. As Yeshua pointed out to Peter, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? So people look at, at what Paul is saying here and they assume that Yeshua was basically just a man upon whom the Spirit of God was there. And anytime you try to simplify the mysteries in the word of the word of god what you do is you 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 make it you twist it and you shove it into your own grid in order to try and explain it but you really don't have the truth you have a lie yeshua emptied himself again i believe it it had to do with the fact that he laid aside his status and his privileges He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was discouraged. Do you know that Yeshua was discouraged? I would be. You know, if you walk with the disciples all the all, three years and you're pouring your heart out and you're telling them that you're about to be crucified, and what do they do? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? So yes, he did get discouraged. He got disgusted. He was fully man. He was not a humanoid. He wasn't beamed from place to place. He walked. He was tired. He suffered. He came from a poor family. Did you know that Yeshua's family was so poor that his mother Miriam brought the poorest of the poor offering when she needed to be ritually cleansed after her birth. Yeshua wasn't born to an upper crust family. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself. That was the attitude, but it wasn't just an attitude. It was how he lived his life. Yeshua said in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He went a distance. Now you say, okay, that's great. That's who Yeshua is. I'm not Yeshua, right? However, we are called to be like him, to follow him. Paul says, let this same mindset that was in Yeshua be in you. Why are we reluctant to follow Yeshua. Well, one reason is we're convinced that if we serve humbly that our interests will not be looked after. If we serve humbly like Yeshua did, we will lose out. We will get the short end of the stick. And here where the Word of God gives us it absolutely positively strong assurance from God that as we seek to have a humble attitude and live in humility that the Lord would see to it that we don't lose out.
Verse 9 of chapter 2 here in Philippians. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And honored him with a name that is above every name. What's a name above every name? That's the name of God. That the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow in, in heaven, in the earth, in, on the earth, and under the earth, every tongue confess that Messiah Yeshua is Lord. Is this some Greek philosophy that Paul cooked up while he was um, studying in Tarsus? No, this is something that came from the Tanakh. Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity. A word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. Every tongue confess. Yeshua HaMashiach Hu HaAdon or Hu Adonai. Yeshua, the Messiah, is the Lord. But he first of all had to go through the misery and, and the humiliation of being a servant before he would be raised to a place of special honor. And we always want to bypass that. We always want to go straight zero to 60 to the place of honor. We're not willing to go through the narrow gate that Yeshua calls us to go through to be humble servants like He was. Because we're convinced that if we do that, we will never be recognized, we will never be appreciated, we'll never be honored. And that's simply a lie. Because here we have Yeshua's example and we have a clear teaching of the word of God let me just rattle to you a couple of verses James 4 6 but he gives more grace he gives us more grace that is why scripture says God opposes the proud now hear this God stands in opposition to the proud but he gives grace to the humble humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Peter puts it in a similar language. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up when you feel like it. According to your schedule and your calendar. No, in due time, in due time, by the way, in Greek is kairos, Hebrew is moed, it means according to God's calendar. As he looks at his calendar and he says, okay, you have been faithful in little, little, I'm going to put you in charge of many things according to my calendar. That's the reality of the word of God, folks. That humility doesn't mean that God leaves us in the dust. Humility 
and serving the Lord with the little things brings us into a place where we know God is going to bless us. We know that God is going to bless us because we're following the principle and the pattern of the Word of God. We're following the pattern of Yeshua's life who made himself of nothing and became a servant and humbled himself in obedience. And according to the Father's good calendar, good time, he raised him up. And that's what God wants to do with us. That's what God wants to do with us. It's about him his schedule, his calendar, his priorities. But we first of all have to learn to walk in humility. Several scriptures, and please just listen. This is in the Psalms. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So Psalm eighteen twenty-seven. Psalm 25, 9. He guides the humble in what is right. And teach them his way. Implication there is for those who are not willing to be humble. What, what do they experience? They bang their head against the wall again and again and again. Until they finally get the fact that the Lord expects them to walk in humility. Psalm 147.6 The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Psalm 147. Uh, 149.4 For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Yeshua. The Lord elevates those who are humble and humbles those who elevate Himself. That's what Yeshua calls us to do is, is to learn to walk in unity to learn to walk in humility and follow his example. Let's pray. And would you please stand? I just want to challenge you with a couple of thoughts as we prepare to conclude the service. Lord knows your heart. Lord knows which ditch you tend to fall into. The, the one that puts yourself down is perpetually self-deprecating and worthless. I'm no good. The other one is you being convinced that you're hot stuff and you want to prove something to God and everybody else. The Lord knows all of that. He has a balance. But it begins with us learning to see ourselves as He sees us. Father God, we thank You for this awesome, sobering, perplexing example that we see in Your Word of Yeshua, our Messiah. We recognize, Lord God, our sin, our propensity to 
drift from one, one extreme to the other. And Lord God, we desire to be right where you want us, Lord. Learning to serve you in humility, in the small things that you put before us. And then as you raise us up, Lord God, to continue to serve you in humility, in faithfulness, and in unity with our brothers and sisters. Lord God, we pray that you would bring about that growth into maturity in you, that we would learn to serve together and be part of what you're doing, not only with us individually, but with us corporately. And we pray, Father God, that in all things you would receive the honor and the glory. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen.